today is a little bit bittersweet. Bitter probably because of me being selfish more than anything. But preaching through Colossians has been a true joy. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity with you to lead our family through God's Word. And it's been a, it's been a genuine privilege, and I'm grateful for it. And sweet because the period is put on this book, and we will close it for today. Hopefully, though, these truths are alive in our hearts, and this book has, has been one that, uh, that has breathed life into your spiritual walk, into your perspective of how you view Christ and, uh, and the way in which we participate with Him. So we will spend a few moments at the end uh, reflecting on the book as a whole and some of the primary themes and the beautiful truths we've seen echo throughout the whole book. Um, but for now, Paul's conclusion. And we finished the body of the letter. Really, his theological arguments were completed last week. So this sermon does look a little bit different because it's essentially his signing off. He's saying all of the brothers say hello, and this is who's bringing the letter to you, and I'm signing it with my name, and this is the end of the letter. So it, it is a little bit different because it's not perhaps uh, adding or building on the theological argument he's been making. So our plan is, is really to walk through and identify to the best of our knowledge who these people are. Some of them we know far more about than others and observe how they're relating to each other. Um, and then, as we said, spend a few minutes reflecting on, on the truth of the book as a whole. So the structure today, and it is still relatively simple, though there's a whole bunch of names, um, is the sketch of verses 7 through 18, is that there are two messengers, two people who bring the letter together, and then there are three Jewish brothers mentioned in 10 and 11, and then there are three Gentile brothers, minus one, mentioned in 12 through 15, through 14, and then the final few verses are all of Paul's final instructions. So a few commands and, and encouragements, things he's asking them to do before the letter is over. So that's the, that's the structure. Two messengers, three Jewish brothers, three Gentile brothers, minus one, and then a few final encouragements and commands. Let's seek God's help before we look into the end of Colossians. Father, we know that this is your book, this is your day, this is your word, this is your people. Today is not about us, any one of us or all of us put together, save that we represent your son, Jesus, and we seek to abide in him, to live out consistently the new life that we've tasted in him. And so we ask for your help to that end, that you would be glorified as we open your word, that we would be grown, that your spirit was, who is in us would have free course in our lives as he illuminates the truth of your word, as he progressively sanctifies us according to your promise, as he changes our desires to be more Christological. Uh, we're grateful for the promises you've made to us, the covenants you've made through the blood of your Son, our Savior, many truths we've seen, learned, been reminded of in this book. And we pray for 
your help in concluding it today. Concluding it in a sermon, I do ask that these truths would live on in your people as we walk through life toward a new earth with resurrected bodies where we will worship our resurrected King forever and ever. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Okay, two messengers, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. So Tychicus was a traveling companion of Paul's, a trusted co-worker for many years, even to the end. There were people that came and went throughout all of Paul's life, but Tychicus was one that kind of came in the middle of his traveling missionary journeys and stayed up until the end. He's mentioned multiple times throughout the book of Acts and, and even into Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy. Not only did he deliver this letter, so he's the one, he's the carrier of the letter to take it back to Colossae, uh, but he also carried the letter of Ephesians as well. We learned that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. So why Tychicus? Why him as a messenger? And what we learn is from the Apostle Paul particularly, having a trusted spokesperson was incredibly significant, particularly relevant in this case, wasn't it? That because he's bringing Onesimus back with him, and we've reflected on what that means throughout, uh, throughout the book of Philemon, um, there's, there's, there's the opportunity for Onesimus' presence to spark deep conflict in the Colossian family. So to have someone wise, to have someone discerning, to have someone theologically established who also understands the, the gospel of grace and who could say it like Paul would say it, that's really important. So he's sending, to him, he's sending Tychicus to them as he would go himself. So a very trusted brother. And you see that in the descriptions threefold, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. So God views this man as beloved, therefore he's someone we can trust, even trust with our very lives. He's a faithful servant, someone who has demonstrated years of fidelity to Paul. This isn't something he would say about someone very lightly. You know, a faithful servant, so he's committed to the gospel. He's willing to sacrifice for it. Paul's seen that time and time again by Tychicus staying by his side. And then he's a fellow servant. And that is an interesting um, description because this is the same word that he used previously in, at the end of chapter 3 to describe a household servant or a slave. He's a fellow slave, a fellow servant of Christ with Paul. Fascinatingly, when he mentions Onesimus in a moment, he doesn't describe him as a fellow servant. It's a little bit ironic, isn't it? That Paul is reminding them, one, back to the, back to the, table, the household table, our code of conduct, we all are servants. We all are slaves of Christ. This goes back to redemption. We've been purchased by His blood, and so we serve Him. And this is a word that Paul viewed as a very exalted word, as a very high privilege, not something he would call just anybody, even someone he believed was a brother. That, in Paul's mind, didn't always make them a fellow servant, a fellow slave of Christ. And so he gives him this particularly important title in light of Onesimus being his traveling companion. There are two purposes 
that are two missions perhaps that Tychicus has from Paul, and that's verse 8. Why is he sending this man? Well, for this purpose, <clears throat> that he may know your circumstances and comfort your heart. Some of you reading that may read something a little bit differently, the beginning of verse 8, something like he, uh, that, that he's sending him to you to tell you of our circumstances. That's because there's a textual variant here in the text. Is he going to tell uh, the Colossians about Paul, or is he going to hear about the Colossians when he arrives? Now, certainly the first one is true because he said that in verse 7, and he says it again in verse 9. So he's definitely going to tell the people about how Paul is doing, how this, we believe, is his Roman house arrest is going, who's been with him, what's, the, what's another word from the apostle, uh, and probably to tell them also of, of their dear brother Epaphras, their pastor that they're missing, who's presently still with Paul. So he's definitely going to bear news, not only the letter, but just kind of a life update with how everyone is doing and how the gospel is even advancing in Rome with Onesimus as visible evidence of it. It could also be that he's, I mean, he, certainly he's going to hear how they're doing too. Um, and both of these options are represented in textual families. There's, there's good evidence for both of them. Um, and choosing between them is not particularly important for us this morning um, because both are on the table, one explicitly and one certainly implicitly for Tychicus and Onesimus in their travels to the Lycus Valley. Not only to give news, but then probably even more significantly to comfort their hearts. And that's probably best done by reading and explaining the Pauline letter, by standing before the family, even as we've had the opportunity to do and to read through what the apostle has to say. And what does he have to say? Well, very Christological things. And in reflecting on the person of Christ, our hearts would be comforted. So once again, though, the scope of Tychicus's responsibility, that's pretty significant. As the apostolic representative, Paul trusts him very deeply to relay truth with experience and significance and grace. So that's Tychicus, the primary letter carrier messenger of the apostle. And of course, he goes with Onesimus, verse 9, who Paul describes as a faithful and beloved brother. We've reflected on him uh, quite a bit um, one Sunday morning and several Wednesday nights about what, uh, how, how the gospel impacted the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. But he's now a beloved brother, returned servant of Philemon. Now something far more significant. We've already noted he omits fellow servant here, which is, I think, ironic. Um, and it may also be because the text or that, that title is so sacred to Paul that he still was reserving it for Onesimus. Onesimus is, he calls him brother, but he's still brand new in the faith. And someone who's a fellow servant of Christ is someone who's suffered alongside Paul over the years. So, again, more than two messenger boys, right, delivering sort of the apostles' telegram. More than that, because they're explaining it, communicating it, pre preaching it, probably, and making sure that the message resonates and lands um, as they navigate the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Okay. 
Then in verses 10 through 12, or 10 and 11, three Jewish brothers. We see that at the end of verse 11, but these three are Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, called Justice. So Aristarchus, is, we find him at closer to the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27, verse 2. He's called a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He's another, uh, another uh, travel companion on the later missionary journey of Paul. Uh, we know from uh, slightly earlier in Acts, chapter 19, that Aristarchus was present with Paul during the riot in Ephesus. And so he had experienced a great deal alongside the apostle, perhaps even literal imprisonment. And he's called here uh, a fellow prisoner, which could either be literal or metaphorical, it's, and may even be both. But a literal description would be, of course, their shared time in, in prison, their shared time in chains behind bars, uh, and they had likely done that together, or metaphorical in that he's referring to their partnership in submitting to the lordship of Christ, that they were both captives of Christ, that they shared that in common, not unrelated from the way he would say fellow servant or fellow soldier, things like this that the apostle did refer to quite often. That's all that we know of Aristarchus. Um, and then there's Mark. He's, he's actually quite a significant New Testament figure. He's also car, called John Mark, and he was present earlier in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. You'll probably recall um, that when Herod began pressing hard against the New Testament church as this, this early body of, of believers, and he had just killed uh, James, the brother of John, and then he had arrested Peter because the Jews liked that he had killed James. And so he had arrested Peter intending to do the same. And the early church in Jerusalem gathered and they prayed. They were praying and they were praying. And just the night before Herod was going to kill Peter, he sent an angel to deliver Peter and he freed him from jail. And Peter goes to the house of Mary where the New Testament church is meeting and praying. Mary is John Mark's mother. So his mom was, was a significant figure in hosting the New Testament church and how, the church in her house. Uh, and, and so he grew up really around faith. Um, he was a, a younger man than Paul and, and Barnabas. And after, after what we learn in Acts chapter 12, we know that Paul and Barnabas uh, return from their first kind of commission and then they embark on their first missionary journey. And they take John Mark with them. So he's a, one of the earliest travel companions of Paul. And drama ensues on that first missionary journey because John Mark departs. He goes home at some point in the journey and we don't exactly know what sparked it. We don't know the precise moments or, or the circumstances around it. But Paul is not happy about it. He views what John Mark has done as desertion. He would not have called him a fellow servant. Not have called him you know, a fellow sufferer in the gospel. No, you left us. You abandoned us. And Barnabas, his cousin, he's like, well, no, no. If these were the circumstances, perhaps. We should be gracious, Paul. Don't be so harsh. And, and Paul and Barnabas had this great conflict. They disagreed very deeply, very sharply, so much so they couldn't travel together. And so Barnabas takes John Mark out on another journey. Paul will have nothing to do with him, and he takes uh, other messenger Silas with him. 
Now Mark is with him. That's interesting. Some things have happened uh, in the silence of Scripture, haven't they? Now Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom, Mark, you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul has had a change of heart about Mark. Paul now views Mark as brother, as fellow servant, as fellow sufferer, this sort of thing. What has happened? Well, Barnabas appears to have been right, and Mark probably appears to have grown up in the faith a bit. And so, in the end, even of 2 Timothy, Paul views Mark very warmly, and he says, he's a dear help to me, and he's ministered to me, he's served me. Welcome him. He is a brother. He doesn't say it here, but I'm sure there were other times that Paul was like, I was wrong about you, and he probably has a humble disposition regarding Mark. Mark is also appears to have a, a pretty significant ministry in Rome. Um, Peter refers to Mark in his letters as being very helpful as well. Um, and it was likely from Rome that Mark authored the gospel that now bears his name. So Aristarchus, faithful traveling companion, Mark, the once perceived abandoner, now faithful servant, and then Jesus, who is called Justice. So Jesus would be his Hebrew name, Justice would be his Greek name. And we really don't know anything about this guy. Um, he's just here, and he's faithful to Paul. And for that, we appreciate him, and so did the Colossians. He sends warm greetings uh, along with Tychicus. So those are the three Jewish brothers, right? That's how uh, Paul describes them. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. That word comfort is hapax, meaning it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. So exactly what it means is a little bit vague, but something along the lines that they assisted him, they, they encouraged him, they were a consolation to him. And I think that as we reflect back and we sort of paint a whole picture of how Paul viewed his countrymen, how Paul viewed the circumcision, that we would see it would be particularly special and warm and joyful to him that some of those who should have heard, should have best known, best, been best able to identify the Messiah, a few of them did. And a few of them were with him. And it wasn't the largest group. He's, a, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's an apostle to take the gospel beyond national boundaries. But there were some of his countrymen with him, and that was particularly special to him. We'll come back to this in a moment at the end of the, the Gentile brothers as well. But notice that the Jew-Gentile distinctions are not erased, are they? They're not erased. They're just superseded by Christ. So I think a particular beauty and comfort for Paul when someone who was an ethnic Jew was also a spiritual Jew. An ethnic Israelite as a spiritual Israelite. That was perhaps a particular joy to the apostle. Those are the first three. Then the second set of three, three Gentile brothers. Epaphras, a name that hopefully is familiar. Then Luke, 
and Demas. So Epaphras and Will, of course, camp here for a moment. A lot is said about him. He is one of you, a bondservant of Christ. He greets you. He's always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So this instrument of God, this individual that God has chosen without whom this entire story would not exist. So briefly review who he is, right? This is the, uh, also a traveling companion, someone who is mentored under Paul. He learned of the gospel from Paul, Epaphras did. And with this tremendous ache in his heart, this burden for home, he departs from Paul being equipped with the gospel, and he goes to the Lycus Valley, the valley where these three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, reside. And he loved Colossae dearly. He loved the gospel even more. But this true desire of Epaphras' heart was to pour out his own life on behalf of the Christians in the Lycus Valley. His zeal was so great, so tireless, so energetic for them that he worked and worked and worked. He sweated. He poured out himself particularly in prayer for them. Now, that designation would be even more relevant when he's distant from them. It's not as though he's preaching to them while he's with Paul and probably is Aristarchus leading the assembly back home. And so what does he do? What can he do? Well, he can pray. And praying is one of the greatest ministries, as we saw back of the apostle and of the early pastors, the pastoral responsibility today. This is one of the top-tier responsibilities of a pastor is to pray. And what is it that he prayed? Well, we learn from this as well. He prayed that... The Christians would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. It's kind of four elements there. Standing, perfection or maturity, completeness. You may also see full assurance there instead of completeness, another textual variant. And then the will of God. This idea of standing is nowhere else in the letter. It's a bit unique and perhaps is because that was something that Epaphras prayed constantly, and Paul knew it, and he picked it up, and he, he said, this particularly is, is what he's saying, that you would be established, that you would be immovable, that your feet would be strong, that your steps would be secure, that when the storms of life come and these things might cause a normal person to stagger, the person in Christ does not. The body of Christ does not. We are immovable in him, for he is immovable. And so we ask that they would stand into maturity. This does sound a lot like Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that they'd grow up into the fullness of Christ. In fact, Paul has mentioned this. He's used this own word concerning his own burden for them. Chapter 1, verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus as they are intended to be in Christ, done, ripe, fully grown, or matured. And then he uses that idea, completeness or fully assured. 
Um, once again, this is kind of a, a big distinction between two textual families. Um, so there's good evidence for either one of these. And both of them in, insinuate something similar. It insinuates this confidence, this absolute assurance that no matter what these false teachers are saying, no matter what my old life says in my ear, I have confidence in what Jesus has done and in who Jesus is. And that's what the letter has largely been about, is who he is and what he's done. So he says, standing um, perfect, mature, complete or fully assured in what? In the will of God. Some bells should be going off in your head if you've been with us through all of Colossians. Is this not also Paul's own prayer? Chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you and to ask what? That you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The knowledge of the will of God. We talked about it then. We'll reiterate it briefly now. We're not talking about which door to go through, which person to marry, which job to take. That's not the reference to the will of God here. This will of God is a redemptive will of God. That's what he's been about for the whole letter. And he's argued that in knowing it, in it becoming a part of you, that it bears fruit in our lives. That's the very reason at the beginning of the letter, Paul springs out with rejoicing. It's because I heard that you heard, that you know, and that it's changed you, that it's bearing fruit. It has an effect. That's why Paul and Epaphras and Timothy and Luke and all the others, they're praying for knowledge of the will of God. Because it establishes us. Redemption in Christ. Reconciliation roots us. Causes our feet to be established. To stand. And so Epaphras here, he really is a model pastor. It's, it's a tremendous example to, to me, to Pastor Matt, uh, and to all who aspire to the office, and to all who seek to be wise and mature in Christ. Watch Epaphras. His example is, is truly humbling because he gave everything for the cause of Christ. And for what it's worth, I would echo Paul's words about your other pastor here. That I would bear witness that Pastor Matt has a great zeal for you, for all of you here, and for the valley, for the gospel in our valley and ministers faithfully, and prays faithfully. He's a wise example to us. I'm grateful for him. And I bear witness to you today that that is true. Paphras isn't the only one, though. He's in a list of many, and a list of others, and three particularly relevant here, Luke and then Demas. So Luke, this beloved physician, now he was... He's also a major character in the New Testament, isn't he? Uh, he was a traveling companion of Paul. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's the author of the book of Acts, the great history of the early church. 
And his writing in length surpasses that of the Apostle Paul's. So it's not insignificant who he's talking about here. Um, and between, if you consider all three of them, if you consider, uh, consider uh, Paul and then Luke and Mark all together, we have well over half of the New Testament represented. Those three men authored a, a, most of what we see, a, a big majority of what we see, aside from if you had Matthew and John there, and you'd have just about all of it. So that's significant who's together, this band of, of brotherhood, these, these apostles and faithful servants of Christ gathered together around Paul uh, to minister to him in his chains. And uh, so Luke is, as identification here, is beloved physician, a man who practiced medicine, a man who cared for the body, the physical body, a man who also cared for the soul. So in Luke, we see someone who is educated, someone who is compassionate, who is very precise, and he cared for the whole person. The body and the soul of a person was deeply on Luke's mind. He may even have been the Apostle Paul's own physician in his chains while he was in, under house arrest in Rome. So a very special man, a significant man, and a faithful servant of Christ as well. And then uh, the Judas of the group, the final Gentile professor of faith, at this time, Demas. His name even kind of sounds bad, doesn't it? Demas. In 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. Demas didn't take Colossians to heart, did he? He didn't live in this realized Christological reality. He loved the old life, which was revealed to be the only life he ever knew. There are lessons for us here as a church family with the example of Mark and of Demas. It would be foolish of us to think that there aren't probably both in and around every local assembly. They were in and around the apostle himself, Christ, or the, I mean, Paul himself. And uh, so there are probably people in our lives, if we adopt the perspective of Paul, that we would be very critical of, that we would give an eye and say, they're not really very true, are they? They're not really very mature. I don't know that there is much spiritual substance to that individual, and my, how we would be wrong. There are marks among us. And that is hopeful, that is encouraging, that God will do His work. He will grow His people, even from immaturity to maturity. Isn't that the prayer of the apostle and the prayer of Epaphras? And God does that. And there are Demases too. There are people who would be greeted or who would be in a letter, canonized by the Spirit of God and the apostle Paul that their words go out, and this pen says, Demas says hello. He's with me. 
And that man is a Judas. That man walks away. That man betrays the family of faith. It is encouraging, I think, that there was one around Christ, not unknown to him, of course, and there was one around the Apostle Paul, and there have been some around us, perhaps there are today. We need to pray. This is one of the reasons we pray for grace towards one another. We pray that these truths would find home in our heart, they would take up residence, because it could be easy to find out some, some difficult news concerning Demas is amongst us. So it's a warning for us. Implication of these two groups of three, though, are, are not insignificant from the book of Colossians, that we have three Jewish brothers and three, two Gentile brothers, and they're cooperating together with Paul in the gospel. So the distinctions, you remember, in the middle of chapter 3, in Christ, like once we put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him uh, who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. These men crossed boundaries that the culture was unwilling to cross. Deep lines in the sand, chasms that separated groups. Christ surpasses that. Christ is more than that. And it is important to reiterate and remember that the distinctions aren't gone. They're not erased. We are us. I am me. You are you. And there are unique and beautiful things about us, the places we've been, where we're from, what our heritage is. And those things are things to be celebrated. And I believe they will be even eternally celebrated. We don't cease to become us. But they're not the most important thing about us, are they? We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We are the redeemed ones. And so Christ is most significant to us. Then these final instructions, uh, beginning in verse 15. So to the Colossians, after all the greetings of, of the brothers to them, now he calls on them to also greet the rest of those who are in the Lycus Valley, those who are in Laodicea, particularly the church that is there with the leader or the host at least um, named Nymphus. Some of you will have a him. Some of you will have a her. It's not because they're confused. It's because we don't know which one they were, okay? A him or a her, Nymphus. It kind of depends on which text you go with. But it's either a man or a woman, Okay? And they generously provided the place for this church in Laodicea uh, to meet. And so greet them. Pass on my warm blessings. And then, secondly, after you greet them, there's to be a letter exchange. Verse 16. When this epistle's read among you, once you've evaluated it, probably copied it down a couple of times, send it over in the valley. Send it across the valley to this other local church. And have them read it, and then they have one for you too. So Tychicus is carrying the letter to Ephesus, the letter to uh, Colossae, the letter to Philemon, the letter to Laodicea. And so it's interesting, isn't there? Isn't it that there's a letter to the Laodiceans? And what is that letter? Um, a lot of conversation that's probably unnecessary for this morning has been had about that. Uh, I believe that 
it means that Paul wrote a lot more broadly even than what we have recorded. And I think that makes it particularly special and unique that the ones we have canonized, the ones that the Spirit of God breathed out, are before us today. So this isn't a lost biblical letter. This was a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Laodicea. And we don't know what it said. But isn't that special that we do have Colossians? That the Spirit of God preserved it for us? Wouldn't that insinuate that both in the letter exchange across the valley and in the preservation of one for God's family today, that what's in this letter matters beyond the local family in Colossae. The very things they were facing, while they had immediate and cultural and historical relevance, they also are timeless. They are things that all cultures, all times, all histories experience, and that's one of the reasons that it's so significant for us today. So, a letter exchange after a greeting, and then Archippus, verse 17, say to him, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. In the book of Philemon, Archippus is identified as one of the recipients of the letter and a fellow soldier of Paul's. We do not know what particularly this ministry was. Not as much has been written about this as the letter to the Laodiceans, but a lot has been as well. Everyone wondering who this man was and what particularly Paul was calling him to do. Is he being critical? Is he being encouraging? What's, what's Archippus' ministry and why must he be called to it? I think it's probably most natural, while we would maintain that we don't know for certain, that Archippus is probably the pastor in Colossae in Epaphras' stead. He's the one that's leading the family of faith. He certainly has a significant ministry. These are the same words that Paul would be using to describe the pastoral responsibility. And so I believe it is a warm and a kind encouragement for this faithful minister of the gospel to carry on, right? Epaphras isn't back yet. He's still over with Paul. Paul's not there, so Archippus is probably maybe intimidated. I don't know. But it's a kind word to a faithful minister of the gospel to carry on. And so I can't help but notice the parallel today uh, between the last word of Colossians and Pastor Matt being back from sabbatical next week and so I would say to our dear brother and shepherd and to my fellow laborer in the gospel, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received from our master and our king. You've labored well for many years, 20 years as we celebrated this year. And our family responded this year with generosity and kindness and reprieve. And so as you put your hand back to the worn plow that is familiar, take it up with courage, with confidence, and fulfill your ministry. Do what God has called you to do. And in so doing, I will and we will be blessed by it. This salutation by Paul's own hand, or by his own hand, 
Paul. So he writes his name at the end. This was common for the Apostle Paul to do. Um, He had a scribe, the fancy word would be an amanuensis, someone who wrote the letter for him. Um, And at the end here, he kind of jumps on. He says, let me write my name. Let me sign sign at the bottom. And he says a few things. I think he probably writes all of verse 18. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. I don't know if handwriting is strong or if it is weak. There's some other clues that perhaps his handwriting is large or maybe his eyes are not so strong as they once were. We don't exactly know. But it is easy, isn't it? After he says, remember my change to be prompted with the reality that often when needs are out of sight, they're out of mind. We even experience this in the family. When someone comes to you grieving, lost, or not necessarily lost, but just struggling, something on their mind, and you're with them in that moment. Maybe even pray together. And then they go their way and you go yours, and you've forgotten the suffering of the body of Christ. It's important for us to put this back on our minds. Certainly, I mean, when he references chains, it brings, us, it brings to our mind the, the persecuted family of God. And it's our desire, our practice even, to remember every week the persecuted family. Um, But I think it does go beyond that. It goes toward all of our sufferings, I think, toward those who are burdened, those who are low, those who are struggling, those who are in a dark and difficult place. I think we've seen a, a pretty tragic demonstration of that even this past week. People amongst us are suffering. Our brothers and sisters may be high and they may be low. Encourage one another. Remember each other. Speak to one another. In songs, hymn spiritual songs, speak to one another personally and remember each other before the Father. This is a part of our spiritual vigilance that we would take to heart one another's and our global family circumstances. And then he says, grace be with you. And those words are increasingly sweet, are they not? A benediction from the apostle to his family that he had never met. Grace be with you. Grace Grace is everything that we have, dear church. It's all or nothing with grace. We reiterated on Friday night at Darren's Memorial that grace is not a starting point. Grace is, it's an all or nothing affair. Either God has graciously given us salvation and new life in Christ, or He hasn't. And if He has, we are most blessed. We have everything. We have life and we have it abundantly. We have an eternal inheritance. We have it all. And if we have not that, then even were we to gain the whole world, we have nothing. And He ends with an amen. I'll keep it brief, but I do want to just look back and reflect on a few of the themes from Colossians. These are the things that I pray stick with you outside of today. That because they've been said so many times, not just by me, but by the apostle, by God himself, 
that these things are like, this is now a part of the way I think. This is now a part, or I've been reminded toward this end. And first and foremost, in this entire book, we've seen the supremacy of Christ, that He is fuller, He is truer, He is better, He is everything, He's greater than, than anything else, whether it's an idea, whether it's a person, whether it's a principle, whether it's the old way of life, whether it's some sort of supplement, whatever it is, nothing comes close to the radiance and the first place position of Christ. Everything else is secondary. Good or bad, it's all secondary to Him. The beauty and the power of the image of baptism. Probably more than ever before, I am captivated by the impact of the spiritual reality that is and the physical imagery that demonstrates this deadness and new life. That is one of the main things he's used, the primary visible evidence he's used to describe our life in Christ. And that's all in chapter 2, um, starting in verse 11, you know, that we, that we, that by the, uh, verse 12, sorry, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And everything that he says after that flows out of that image. Remember that. If we've died, then we would put off the old ideas. If we live, then we would gain new ideas, the Christological ideas. Chapter 3, 1 through 4, the very mind of Christ, setting our, setting our mind on things above. And if we died, then our actions are completely different in relationship to each other. We no longer treat one another with harshness and bitterness and sexual morality and all of this old devilish nonsense. Instead, we've adopted the virtues of Christ because we live with Him. And then even interacting in the home and interacting outside, all of it's based on that imagery, on the baptism imagery. So that's a beautiful and a powerful image. Then, in relationship with that, I hope that we walk away with a very present, think, a present thinking um, realization of spiritual life and vitality and victory today. We are dead to sin. That's been his argument. Yes, we wrestle with the flesh. Yes, but Paul doesn't make that caveat here. <laughs> he says it's done. And he points to the cross as evidence that it's done. And he even says that the powers that be that were have been humiliated and brought to nothing. He made a public spectacle of them. He embarrassed them in his, in his triumphal parade. It's over. And so live like it's over. Ah, oh, that's difficult because we fail. But it is, it is finished. It's accomplished. This present reality of spiritual life and victory and eschatology, all of that. And then finally, fourth and finally, the importance of prayer. 
Um, seen that at the beginning, Paul, thanksgiving, Paul, prayer, Epaphras, prayer, church, pray, all of it at the beginning and the end. So the top and tail of Colossians is loaded with these ideas and, uh, and, and paired with them the idea of spiritual vigilance, the idea of awareness, awakeness, eyes open, needing to know what's happening in your own heart and in the life of the body of Christ, all of it. The importance of prayer, it demonstrates Humility demonstrates that we have need and that God is the supplier of those needs. There's so much more we could say in review, but we'll, we'll close with that. And I do want to say to you, um, thank you. Thank you for the joy, the privilege, the opportunity these past four months to walk through this book together. I'd, I'd mean it probably more than you know that I would say this has been one of the truest and greatest privileges of my life to be able to preach through a book with you, alongside you, to see the beauty of Christ together. And I pray, I, I give you my commitment that I will join my prayers to Paul's and to Epaphras's that we would be transformed by these truths, that we would... And I would even, if in one small part, be able to participate in presenting our church family before God, perfect, complete, mature in Christ. What a privilege that would be. And so thank you for the opportunity to do that. We'll end with Paul's own words. Grace be with you. Amen. Stand with me. Would you stand with me and let's pray.